0: the law school of america delegated management and agents although a corporation may be considered a separate legal person it physically cannot act by itself there are therefore necessarily rules from the corporation statutes and the law of agency that attribute the acts of real people to the corporation to make contracts deal with property commission towards and so on first The board of directors will be typically appointed at the first corporate meeting by whoever the articles of incorporation identify as entitled to elect them. The board is usually given the collective power to direct, manage and represent the corporation. This power, and its limits, is usually delegated to directors by the state's law, or the articles of incorporation. Second, corporation laws frequently set out roles for particular officers of the corporation, usually in senior management, on or outside of the board. U.S. labor law views directors and officers as holding contracts of employment, although not for all purposes. If the state law, or the corporation's bylaws are silent, the terms of these contracts will define and further detail the role of the directors and officers. Third, directors and officers of the corporation will usually have the authority to delegate tasks and hire employees for the jobs that need performing. Again, The terms of the employment contracts will shape the express terms on which employees act on behalf of the corporation toward the outside world. The acts of directors, officers, and other employees will be binding on the corporation, depending on the law of agency and principles of vicarious liability or respondeat superior. It used to be that the common law recognized constraints on the total capacity of the corporation. If a director or employee acted beyond the purposes or powers of the corporation, ultra vires. Any contract would be ex ante void and unenforceable. This rule was abandoned in the earlier 20th century, and today corporations generally have unlimited capacity and purposes. However, not all actions by corporate agents are binding. For instance, in South Sacramento Dreyage Company v. Campbell Soup Company, it was held that a traffic manager who worked for the Campbell Soup Company did not, unsurprisingly, have authority to enter a 15 year exclusive dealing contract for intrastate hauling of tomatoes. Standard principles of commercial agency apply, apparent authority. If a reasonable person would not think that an employee, given his or her position and role, has authority to enter a contract, then the corporation cannot be bound. However, corporations can always expressly confer greater authority on officers and employees, and so will be bound if the contracts give express or implied actual authority. The treatment of liability for contracts and other consent-based obligations, however, differs to torts and other wrongs. Here the objective of the law to ensure the internalization of externalities or enterprise risks is generally seen to cast a wider scope of liability. Shareholder liability for debts. One of the basic principles of modern corporate law is that people who invest in a corporation have limited liability. For example, as a general rule shareholders can only lose the money they invested in their shares. Practically, limited liability operates only as a default rule for creditors that can adjust their risk. Banks which lend money to corporations frequently contract with a corporation's directors or shareholders to get personal guarantees, or to take security interests in their personal assets, or over a corporation's assets, to ensure their debts are paid in full. This means much of the time, shareholders are in fact liable beyond their initial investments. Similarly, trade creditors, such as suppliers of raw materials, Can use title retention clauses or other devices with the equivalent effect to security interests, to be paid before other creditors in bankruptcy. However, if creditors are unsecured, or for some reason guarantees and security are not enough, creditors cannot, unless there are exceptions, sue shareholders for outstanding debts. Metaphorically speaking, their liability is limited behind the corporate veil. The same analysis, however, has been rejected by the U.S. Supreme Court in Davis v. Alexander. Where a railroad subsidiary company caused injury to cattle that were being transported. As Brandeis J. put it, when one company actually controls another and operates both as a single system, the dominant company will be liable for injuries due to the negligence of the subsidiary company. There are a number of exceptions, which differ according to the law of each state, to the principle of limited liability. First, at the very least, as is recognized in public international law, courts will pierce the corporate veil if the corporation is being used to evade obligations in a dishonest manner defective organization such as a failure to duly file the articles of incorporation with a state official is another universally acknowledged ground however there is considerable diversity in state law and controversy over how much further the law ought to go in kinishu corp people in the fourth circuit federal court of appeals held that it would also pierce the veil if, one, the corporation had been inadequately capitalized to meet its future obligations, two, if no corporate formalities, for example, meetings and minutes, had been observed, or, three, the corporation was deliberately used to benefit an associated corporation. However, a subsequent opinion of the same court emphasized that piercing could not take place merely to prevent an abstract notion of unfairness or injustice. A further Though technically different, equitable remedy is that according to the U.S. Supreme Court in Taylor v. Standard Gas Company corporate insiders, for example directors or major shareholders, who are also creditors of a company are subordinated to other creditors when the company goes bankrupt if the company is inadequately capitalized for the operations it was undertaking. Tort victims differ from commercial creditors because they have no ability to contract around limited liability and are therefore regarded differently under most state laws. The theory developed in the mid-20th century that beyond the corporation itself, it was more appropriate for the law to recognize the economic enterprise, which usually comprises groups of corporations, where the parent takes the benefit of a subsidiary's activities and is capable of exercising decisive influence. A concept of enterprise liability was developed in fields such tax law, accounting practices, and antitrust law that were gradually received into the court's jurisprudence. Older cases had suggested that there was no special right to pierce the veil in favor of tort victims, even where pedestrians had been hit by a tram owned by a bankrupt subsidiary corporation, or by taxicabs that were owned by undercapitalized subsidiary corporations. More modern authority suggested a different approach. In a case concerning one of the worst oil spills in history, caused by the Amoco Cadiz which was owned through subsidiaries of the Amoco Corporation. The Illinois court that heard the case stated that the parent corporation was liable by the fact of its group structure. The courts therefore usually apply more stringent standards to piercing the corporate veil in a contract case than they do in tort cases because tort claimants do not voluntarily accept limited liability. Under the Comprehensive Environmental Response, Compensation, and Liability Act of 1980, the US Supreme Court in United States v. Best Foods held if a parent corporation actively participated in and exercised control over, the operations of a subsidiary's facilities it may be held directly liable. This leaves the question of the nature of the common law, in absence of a specific statute, or where a state law forbids piercing the veil except on very limited grounds. One possibility is that tort victims go uncompensated, even while a parent corporation is solvent and has insurance. A second possibility is that a compromise liability regime such as pro rata rather than joint and several liability is imposed across all shareholders regardless of size. A third possibility, and one that does not interfere with the basics of corporate law, is that a direct duty of care could be owed in tort to the injured person by parent corporations and major shareholders to the extent they could exercise control. This route means corporate enterprise would not gain a subsidy at the expense of other people's health and environment, and that there is no need to pierce the veil. Now, a word from our sponsor. the Law School of America. Corporate Governance. Corporate governance, though used in many senses, is primarily concerned with the balance of power among the main actors in the corporation, directors, shareholders, employees, and other stakeholders. A combination of a state's corporation law, case law developed by the courts, and a corporation's own articles of incorporation and bylaws determine how power is shared. In general, The rules of a corporation's constitution can be written in whatever way its incorporators choose, or however it is subsequently amended, so long as they comply with the minimum compulsory standards of the law. Different laws seek to protect the corporate stakeholders to different degrees. Among the most important are the voting rights they exercise against the board of directors, either to elect or remove them from office. There is also the right to sue for breaches of duty, and rights of information, typically used to buy, sell an associate or disassociate on the market. The Federal Securities and Exchange Act of 1934 requires minimum standards on the process of voting, particularly in a proxy contest where competing groups attempt to persuade shareholders to delegate them their proxy vote. Shareholders also often have rights to amend the corporate constitution, call meetings, make business proposals, and have a voice on major decisions, although these can be significantly constrained by the board. Employees of U.S. corporations have often had a voice in corporate management, either indirectly, or sometimes directly, though unlike in many major economies, express co-determination laws that allow participation in management have so far been rare. Corporate Constitutions. In principle, a corporation's constitution can be designed in any way so long as it complies with the compulsory rules set down by the state or federal legislature. Most state laws, and the federal government, Give a broad freedom to corporations to design the relative rights of directors, shareholders, employees, and other stakeholders in the articles of incorporation and the bylaws. These are written down during incorporation, and can usually be amended afterwards according to the state law's procedures, which sometimes place obstacles to amendment by a simple majority of shareholders. In the early 1819 case of trustees of Dartmouth College v. Woodward, the U.S. Supreme Court held by a majority that there was a presumption that once a corporate charter was made, the corporation's constitution was subject to no other control on the part of the crown than what is expressly or implicitly reserved by the charter itself. On the facts, this meant that because Dartmouth College's charter could not be amended by the New Hampshire legislature, though subsequent state corporation laws subsequently included provisions saying that this could be done. Today there is a general presumption that whatever balance of powers, rights and duties are set down in the constitution remain binding like a contract would. Most corporation statutes start with a presumption, in contrast to old ultra vires rules, that corporations may pursue any purpose that is lawful, whether that is running a profitable business, delivering services to the community, or any other objects that people involved in a corporation may choose. By default, the common law had historically suggested that all decisions are to be taken by a majority of the incorporators, and that by default the board could be removed by a majority of shareholders for a reason they themselves determined. However these default rules will take subject to the constitution that incorporators themselves define, which in turn takes subject to state law and federal regulation. Although it is possible to structure corporations differently, the two basic organs in a corporate constitution will invariably be the general meeting of its members, usually shareholders, and the board of directors. Boards of directors themselves have been subject in modern regulation to a growing number of requirements regarding their composition particularly in federal law for public corporations. Particularly after the Enron scandal, companies listed on the major stock exchanges, the New York Stock Exchange, the NASDAQ, and Amex, were required to adopt minimum standards on the number of independent directors and their functions. These rules are enforced through the threat of delisting by the exchange, while the Securities and Exchange Commission works to ensure ultimate oversight. For example, the NYSE Listed Company Manual Rule 303A.01 requires that listed companies have a majority of independent directors. Independence is in turn defined by Rule 303A.02 as an absence of material business relationship with the corporation, not having worked for the last three years for the corporation as an employee, not receiving over $120,000 in pay, or generally having family members who are. The idea here is that independent directors will exercise superior oversight of the executive board members, and thus decrease the likelihood of abuse of power. Specifically, the nominations committee, which makes future board appointments, compensation committee, which sets director pay, and audit committee, which appoints the auditors, are required to be composed of independent directors, as defined by the rules. Similar requirements for boards have proliferated across many countries, and so exchange rules allow foreign corporations that are listed on an American exchange to follow their home jurisdiction's rules, but to disclose and explain how their practices differ, if at all, to the market. The difficulty, however, is that oversight of executive directors by independent directors still leaves the possibility of personal relationships that develop into a conflict of interest. This raises the importance of the rights that can be exercised against the board as a whole. The Law School of America. The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation incorporated under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America.